The thing about being a pastor is when you're a pastor, awkward conversations are your way of life. Don't bother me at all. So um, I can, there's a lot of things that bother me, but having an awkward conversation doesn't bother me because I'm pretty much having them every day of my life. So we're about to have an awkward conversation, me and you, in here tonight. So it's going to be good. It shouldn't be awkward, but unfortunately it is. So if you get your handout out and you look, we're going to look at uh, part nine, the seventh commandment. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery, Exodus twenty fourteen. Now, the first thing I want you to understand about this seventh commandment is this. This commandment is about promise keeping. All of these commandments, now you have to really just start to wrap your head around of all the things God could have said, these are the ten things that he chose to address. And they wouldn't be the ten things that we would expect. Some of them would certainly be there, but then other ones, it's a little strange that he chose to, you know, put these in here, and that they would all be grouped together in this, in the Ten Commandments. And so God says that we're not to commit adultery. Now, we know that Jesus dealt with this command. And so whenever we start thinking about this command, our minds always go to the New Testament where we find that it's about our minds as well as our bodies. And that just like some of these other commands that we didn't or wouldn't necessarily think would be in the same list as things like murder, I think a lot of people would, would, uh, would not be surprised that adultery is a big deal to God. But what is surprising is that God gives this to all of his people. I mean, he didn't just... You know, he, he, did, he said that this was important enough to give to everybody. Obviously, not everybody's married. And this is something that we learn early on. And we know that throughout the Bible, and especially in the New Testament, the Bible talks about people who even have the gift of singleness. Yet they need to know that we are not to commit adultery. So that's important information. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, very familiar words. Jesus said, you've heard it said before, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone, and this is where we get the indication of all the things that are wrapped up in this, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, the ESV says, has already committed adultery with her in her heart. Now, that word or that phrase, uh, looking with lustful intent, the Bible doesn't say, look. So like in the King James, and the New King James, you just have the word looks. Look upon a woman, which has tormented Christian men for a long time. The word in the Greek is epithumio, epithumio. That word means to look at something with the intent of lusting, okay? Now, that's helpful information because you need to understand what Jesus is communicating here. He's communicating that looking at a woman is not a sin. Because of what happens is 
is as a Christian man, a lot of times, you know, you're thinking, well, you know, how does this work? Because if to look upon a woman is to sin, we got a problem. Because how, do, how are we going to live? How, do we, how are we going to exist? How is this going to work? Looking at a, at a woman does not, is not what causes a man to commit adultery in his heart. Okay? He's already committed adultery in his heart before he looked at her. His intent preceded the looking. So there's a difference between seeing somebody and noticing that they're a female and having lust built up in your heart so that when you look at them, you're looking at them in the wrong way. And that's just an important thing for us to understand. It's not the... It's the sinful heart that causes the lustful looking. You understand? By the time the lustful looking happens, the sin's already been committed. It's already been committed. So the way to understand this is that the lustful looking is the outward expression of the inward sinfulness that purposes to look at something or to someone to satisfy a sinful desire. You see, what happens is there's, a, there's an unhealthy desire inside. And that unhealthy desire is what creates the lustful looking. So we need to have clarity on this because, you know, there's, there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of tension around this in marriages. And a lot of times for good reason. You have to be careful. Uh, if you're a man, you have to be very careful about what you look at, how you look at it, all those sorts of things. And you have to be very sensitive to the message that you're sending to your wife and the way in which you do so. And so there's a lot. I mean, you can't as a husband say, well, you know, I'm just looking because here's the thing. Your wife can tell the difference. She can tell the difference. She can tell the difference when you look at a man and you look at a woman and they're two different things. See, if you're looking with pure eyes, then you should look the same way at a man as you do at a woman. Amen. Should be the same thing. If you look differently at a woman than you do at a man, there's a problem. Got that? So this isn't an opportunity for you to make an excuse, but it's an opportunity for you to understand. We all need to understand that it's just the an outward expression of what is already going on. Now, when Jesus says this, he addresses all of us and says, this is an adulterous generation. A wicked and adulterous generation, Jesus says. And he's describing a time in which many people have become confused in their attitude and disordered in their behavior when it comes to the matter of sex. Now, isn't that interesting? Here we are. 2,000 years removed. We, have a, we oftentimes think about the first century in the time in which Jesus lived, and we think about how they had a lot of problems, but they had different problems. And they certainly didn't have the same kind of problems that we have. And yet Jesus says 2,000 years ago, this is a wicked and adulterous generation, just like the one we live in now is wicked and adulterous. Some things never change. Listen, we would all agree that today, mm, there we go, we live in an adulterous generation. 
Nobody is going to disagree with that statement. Nobody. The United States of America is by far the leading producer of pornography in the world. The pornography industry generates more money than professional football, professional baseball, professional basketball, and professional hockey combined. Combined. More money in the United States of America, and then we then export it and ship it via electronic waste and digital Babylon all over the world. This makes purity of thought and life one of our greatest struggles. I remember years ago when I first encountered, I mean, the, the entire time that I've been in ministry, I've had to deal with the issue of pornography and all the things that come along with it and had to counsel hundreds of people through all that and, and it, at an alarmingly increasing rate. But I remember about 17 or 18 years ago, the first female that I encountered that was addicted to pornography. And I thought that was the strangest thing. And now it's everyday occurrence. There's absolutely nothing strange about it whatsoever. We live in a wicked and adulterous generation. And what we need to do is not necessarily, uh, you know, bemoan the fact that we do because we do. What we need to do is live in reality and realize that's going to generate and create certain struggles. So we need to have a plan, a game plan to deal with all of this. Now, here's what I've learned about this conversation, that what's helpful is practical encouragement. That's what's helpful when we're having this conversation. Do you know what I found to be not helpful at all? Is condemnation, which is usually the path that people take when they're dealing with something like this. In other words, usually the church's position is condemnation and shame, and that doesn't bring us to a place of healthiness. You're not going to help anybody out of this ditch with shame and condemnation. You know what you're going to do with shame and condemnation? You're going to drive them deeper into it. Before they, Do you know how much shame it, there is when you come to your pastor and you tell your pastor what a problem you have? You got tons of shame at that point. You don't need more shame. More shame is not going to solve the problem. Practical encouragement is going to solve the problem. That's what's going to solve the problem. Now, to our shame, sexuality has been a topic that the church historically has really, really struggled with. And that's a shame. And I think one of the reasons why we're doing such a, or we are suffering so bad within the church is because of this issue right here. That we've brought this strange taboo into the church. I don't understand this.
This shouldn't be this way. Let me show you something to consider. I want you to consider this. First of all, God created the first man, the first woman. Let's just go back to the basics, okay? So God in his creation designed not one but two individuals. And he designed these two individuals anatomically different and anatomically compatible. God did that. He didn't make Adam and Adam, and he didn't make Eve and Eve. He made two distinctly different people who clearly, they're like two puzzle pieces, right, that fit together. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. It was his decision to make them male and female. He did that. He was the one that made us not only physically and anatomically different, but he made, he get, he made us different in, in a multitude of ways. We're completely different. We think differently. We act differently. We're different. Genetically, we're different. We're just different. We're not sure how different we are. Then we get married, and then we understand how different we are. That's how that works. Right. So if God created the first man, the first woman, if God was the one that decided to make the male and female, then that means, brace yourself, God was the first person in the universe ever to have a sexual thought. And it was 100% absolutely pure. Listen to me. In creation, God is the one who determined that he was going to make two distinctly people, two distinctly different people, and that they were going to work together. And then in Genesis chapter 1, he says, then God blessed Adam. Is that what it says? Both of them. Both of them. You got that, ladies? Both of them. God blessed both of them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. If there was any question as to what God's intention was. So who's the one? Who's the one who had the first sexual thought in the entire universe? God the Father, the Creator. God the Creator. He had the first sexual thought. And so it was in his brilliance, the brilliance of creation, that he designed two persons to complement each other in an enjoyable and productive way. See, notice, notice now what God said. He blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. It was enjoyable and it is productive, both at the same time. God created woman for man, taking a rib from Adam. So then when the first marriage takes place and God says, I make you one creation, it's like he's 
It's like a reunion of God bringing things back together, right? He's, he's reunifying it all back together in a way that brings him pleasure. Now, this is so important because this is a big, you know, issue for me, not just uh, in the church and the way people have these weird, you know, I don't know, just all these weird ideas about having a conversation about sex. I don't understand why that's weird. And then what happens is parents, especially in the church, just totally blow this with their children, just absolutely mess this all up. And so we're going to talk about it. It's important for us. It's important for those of us who, who, that we, we may have been brought up with a negative view of sex. I don't understand. And then we do it, we do it again to our children. Listen, what we've got to do is let the Bible inform us. That's what we have to do. We let the Bible inform us, okay? So if you're weird about this, you need to get unweird about it. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 13, marriage is honorable among all. And the marriage bed or the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Now, the mar marriage is honorable among all. Now, what makes marriage honorable? Let me tell you what doesn't make marriage honorable. The two people in the marriage. Your marriage is not honorable because of you. Your marriage is not honorable because of your spouse. Marriage is honorable because of God. Because it's God's idea. What makes marriage honorable is God. Anything God determines to be good is honorable because He determined to be good. You don't make it good because you're not good. And neither am I. It's honorable because it's God's intention. It's God's idea. Now that's important because why do we feel weird about it? Now, if it's honorable because it's God's idea, if God was the one that created us male and female, if God was the first one that had a sexual thought and it was perfectly, totally, 100% pure, then here's my question for you. Then why is it any different for us to have a conversation about sex in the church than it is for us to have a conversation about grace? How come we love to talk about grace? Well, why? Because that's God's idea. Well, guess what? So is sex. Sex and grace ought to be synonymous in the church. Why aren't they? Because the world, because the world infiltrated your minds and infiltrated your understanding. And, and we are the world's worst at when something gets weird in the world, we run away from it because it got weird out there. What's that got to do with anything? What if Jesus gets weird in the world? Then what are you going to do? Abandon him? It's a, it's a, I'm telling you, it's not good. Genesis 2, 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. One flesh. See, I love I love weddings. I love doing weddings. I love premarital counseling. I just love the whole process of it. I love it. I, nothing makes me happier than when two young people 
that grew up in the church, man, when they get, I get so excited for them when they get married. It's just, it just, oh, I just love it. I get to watch them grow up and then they, you know, just do it the right way. It's amazing. It's wonderful. And I love to talk to them about this. And I love to make sure that, you know, at first it's a little bit weird. You're talking to your pastor and he starts talking to you. But then, it, then they realize, I'm like, it's not weird. It's not weird. Becoming one flesh is so much more. Uh, it's, uh, we good? It's more than the union of two bodies. Did you get the one that was before that? Okay, the, the reason that it should be kept pure is because it is pure. And it's pure because God makes it pure because it's his ordinance, right? Yes. You see, it's kind of like, it's like the way God sees the church, the way God sees his bride, pure and spotless. I mean, look around you. Are we, do we look pure and spotless to you? The church isn't pure and spotless because of us. Same reason. Your marriage isn't pure because of you. It's because of God. It's because of God. That's what you got to realize, because of God. So one flesh, so becoming one flesh is, is so much more than the union of two bodies. So much more. Now I want you to think with me for a second about, I'm just going to give you the, the like, you know, just the tip of the iceberg of Two people becoming one, and what happens in this moment? If two people become one, then at the very minimum, it would be two minds, two hearts, two wills, and two souls. At the very minimum. I mean, we could make a list of 30 things, but just basically... All of those become one. So, because we don't want to have these kinds of conversations because they make us feel awkward for some reason, then here's what happens. We don't understand these sorts of things. And so we hear, we come to church and we hear things like, well, you, you go to weddings, Christian weddings, or you hear sermons and you hear somebody quoting the book of Genesis and talking about how two become one, but you, you're left to yourself to sort of sort out what you think that that means, right? Because it's too awkward to have a, a real biblical conversation about it. And so here's what happens. This is what happens in marriages. Because I, I, I'm 100% sure that I've sat down with more husbands and wives times a hundred than anybody in this room. Maybe times a thousand. And so I know a lot about marital strife and marital problems and how to talk to people who are married. And, and, and I've also seen a lot of people who had unbelievably successful and amazing marriages. And let me just explain to you how this works. Okay. Marriages get into difficulties. Because some husbands are very interested in being one in body, but they don't have a lot of interest in being one in mind, soul, and spirit.
You got that? I want you to think about that for a moment. Now I want you to think about the fact that on the other side, we have some wives who are very interested in being one in mind, soul, and spirit, but they don't have a lot of interest in being one in body. Now, God is the one who joined these two things together that no one should separate. God did that. And so, since God did that, and we know God did that, then what's going to be the strategy of the enemy in your marriage? You think the strategy of the enemy is going to be to come to you and tell you, now, God, no, no, God didn't join you two together to become one. No, you know that. What the enemy's going to do is to pervert how do you understand that to be. And so you got men running around here that think, well, this is what that verse means. You got women running around there that think, this is what that verse means. And then you have all these problems. When what we need to do is just everyone needs to understand what God's doing so that we can all come together and we can be successful because we would do what God create us to do so see seeking all of this all of these are gifts this is all a gift and so seeking the gift outside of marriage or neglecting the gift within marriage is equally damaging it's equally damaging now what do we focus on we focus on Seeking the gift outside of marriage. And that's bad and horrible and causes great pain and suffering and all sorts of problems. But what about neglecting it in the marriage? And I would say to you, the reason so many people are seeking it outside the marriage is because it's being neglected inside the marriage. The totality of what I'm talking about. Your will, your soul. All of you. When God puts two people together, he puts all of them together. But what happens is when that gets all messed up and perverted and we get confused about that, then one of the most common struggles that comes from that is when we're tempted to use God's gift of sexuality as a means of finding release or fulfillment rather than a means of expressing love. You see, it gets perverted into something. It gets perverted into some entitlement. It gets perverted into something that it was never intended to be. It is an expression of love. And God's the one that made it that way. You see, if you, re if you reduce sexuality, which is what our culture wants you to do, which is why everybody gets weird when you start having this conversation. Because the culture has reduced sexuality simply down to a means of gratification. But that's not what I'm talking about when I talk about sexuality. And just because the world perverts it doesn't mean I'm not going to stop talking about it. Because I'm talking about what God's talking about. And we all need to be that way. It's not, it can't be just a means of gratification, but then also when, when, when that view it as an outlet for tension, you can't, listen, when, 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 that, when, when the totality of two people becoming one flesh gets twisted, 
it undermines what God has intended this relationship to be. It undermines it. And then what is meant to be a gift starts operating as a curse. It starts ripping apart instead of bringing together. Now, one of the, the big issues that we have to deal with is that, I mean, it's no different than, than Jesus. When he says this is a wicked and adulterous generation, Jesus dealt with people the same way I have to deal with people and you have to deal with people. And all of us have to deal with ourselves, which is this, this is what we need to realize, okay, is that when he died to redeem us, he redeemed every part of our life, and that includes our sexuality. So here's what I'm talking about. So here's the first conversation that I want to have with two, with two people that are about to get married or two people who just got married or two people who are having marital problems, and this is part of the problem, is that when you allow things in your past to come over salvation and into your present, we've got a huge problem. Because everybody's quick to say, well, I'm a Christian and all my sin is forgiven. But let's get specific. What sin is it that's forgiven? Well, all my sin. Okay, well, let's talk about it. Let's talk about that sin. And what, what, are, the, what are the sins in your past that linger greater than any other sin? Sexual sin. Because what does the Bible teach? That's where you're sinning against the body, right? The Bible teaches very clearly. So what is going to be the greatest struggle in marriage if there's a past, if there's a previous, if there's previous physical sin and we allow that to come over into the present, it is going to be a disaster. We cannot do that. Because what we're saying is, is we're saying, well, Jesus' blood was sufficient to save me from all these other things, but somehow this thing is still no. Uh-uh. It's either white as snow or it's not. It's either as far as the east is from the west or it's not. It's either all of it is. No matter what, it's all forgiven. And Jesus redeemed all of us, including our sexuality. So being a Christian is not just about saving your soul. It's about redeeming your life. Your life. So what does that mean? That means that your body was created by God. It has been redeemed by Christ. And it has become the home of the Holy Spirit. Now, just 
Think with me for a second. If your body was created by God, it was redeemed by Christ, and it has become the home of the Holy Spirit. then we can safely say beyond a a shadow of a doubt tonight that the way we use our bodies, it really matters to God. It really, really matters to God. 1 Corinthians 6, the Bible says you were bought with a price. Notice, you were bought with a price. Not period, you were bought with a price, period. Or you were bought with a price, so it would seem like the next thing would be comma, therefore you should go and rejoice like crazy. But look at what the Bible says. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Romans chapter 12, I I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. You don't think this is important to God? 1 Thessalonians 4, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. It's the will of God that that's what we do, that all of us do this, that this matters to God. This is an important conversation that we need to have. So if, listen, think about this. You tell me one other thing. You tell me one thing that matters this much to God that we act weird about and don't want to talk about and then dread having a conversation with our kids about or don't have a conversation with our kids or when we do, we make it awkward or because we were raised awkward, we make them awkward. Think about how we mess this up. This is important to God. I mean, amen. We ought to be having a conversation about it just like we do grace. Just like we do salvation. Just like we do, we need to have a conversation. It's important to God. Because if we don't, what are we going to do? We're going to end up in the mess we're in right now, and everything's going to be messed up. See, God's purpose for every believer is to walk in sexual purity. That is his absolute purpose for all of us. Now, but how are we going to do that? Because, I mean, the last, uh, the last research that I saw on this topic, I mean, if you want to be depressed, you look at the, the level of sexual sin in the church, and you'll be depressed. The, the alarming rate at which... Uh, People who attend church are addicted to pornography or engaged in sexual perversion. And then the astronomical numbers when it comes to people in the ministry and pastors in particular. It's shocking. It is absolutely shocking. Now, how in the world do we get into the mess that we're in? And what, what do we need to do to fix this? Well, we, we need to have some simple, practical conversations. That's the, that's the path to 
healing. So the, here's, here's the way I would put it. First thing we need to do is we need to walk through the door of hope. That's the first thing we need to do. Because what I know is, is that it's very easy to be in this situation and just realize, well, there's no hope. I mean, this is the, this is the continuous, constant battle for Pastor Brian and all of our youth leaders over there. Years of dealing with teenagers, especially teenage girls. Well, I mean, one of the most devastating things to happen is, is when a mistake has been made, when uh, physical sin has come into the picture, the first thing that happens the first mindset that comes is, well, I've blown it, so nothing else matters now. In other words, if I've done this, I might as well just run all the way to there. That's exactly what happens. That's what some of your story is. That's what, that is riddled throughout the church, just riddled. And I'm saying, listen, it, we need to be talking about the door of hope. Listen, when the Bible says, you shall not commit adultery, I want you to change the way you hear that. When the Bible says, you shall not bear false witness, I want you to change the way you hear that. I want you to realize that God's command his commands are His promises. I want you to understand something. God, in His law, says to a wicked and adulterous generation, you shall not commit adultery. Right? That's what He says. He says that to the world. So that the world, the law is designed to expose the fact that we're sinners in need of a grace-filled God, right? When you become a child of God, when he says to you, you shall not commit adultery, what is he saying? Is he saying the same thing to a lost person that he's saying to a saved person? Oh, no. He's saying to a lost person, you shouldn't commit adultery because that's wrong. He's saying to his children, you shouldn't commit adultery. You know why? Because you don't have to anymore. When he says you should not bear false witnesses because you know what you did all your life before me? You lied. But you don't have to lie anymore. Because now sin doesn't have dominion over you. You're not under the, the, the tyranny and the oppression you're not under the law. What did Paul say in Galatians? You're not under law, but you're under what? Now, if I hear the same thing under law as I do under grace, something's wrong, isn't it? I'm not hearing right. It's not the same under law and under grace. He said, I'm not under law anymore. That's don't you dare commit adultery. You know what it is under grace? That's right. Don't commit adultery because you don't have to. Because the Spirit, my Spirit's in you. It's a glorious promise. You see, the thing is, is no matter where you are in this, you need to understand you don't have to do this. 
There's freedom. You're not under law. You're under grace. If you were under law, you'd be dead. See, Jesus Christ came to redeem you, to forgive you, to restore you, and to lead you on the path of purity. These commands become promises, glorious gifts from heaven. Think of it this way. It's like, it's like when, <clears throat> you know, I, I'm just, I mean, I, you know, if you know me, then uh, I'm trying, trying to think of how I can say this. If you know me, you know that, that uh, if you, if you ask me something about something and I don't have an opinion, then I probably have a 105 degree fever and you should rush me to the emergency room immediately. Because whatever, I have an opinion about everything, okay? And I have a, a lot of opinions about this. And one of my, one of the things, my pet peeves, one of the things that's my opinion that frustrates me is when two very young people that love Jesus want to get married and people around them are going, I don't know, I think you're too young. I get so stinking aggravated. What is that? What do you mean? That is such a worldly thing to say. I think you're too young? What do you mean, like Mary and Joseph too young? What are we talking about here? What do you mean? Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? If they've exhibited uh, uh, faithfulness and trustworthiness in their walk with God, the best thing that could ever happen, man, I wish I would have gotten married at 19. It would have saved me a whole lot of heartache and pain. I mean, that is a gift from God. But we, we take to the world, we get all, that is such Dr. Phil garbage. Garbage. Oh, you're too young. What? what? Now, you might say, well, you're too immature. That's different, but you're not too young. Two young people that love Jesus and get married is a extraordinary gift from God. And this is what I want you to understand. When you're having a conversation with your little girl, you're having a conversation with your little boy, you're having a conversation with your teenager, and they start talking about what you want to say to them is you want to start talking to them about, you know what? Man, I prayed. I prayed for Dalton Parker. Me and my wife prayed for him 10,000 times. We prayed every single night for, for the husband of my, my daughter, when she, from the time she was a tiny little girl, I, when we'd say it all the time, I'd say, Lord, I he's alive somewhere. He lives on this earth. I don't know who he is, but I pray for him, and I'm praying you're working in his life right now. I'm praying that you're preparing him to lead her and to be his spiritual leader. And, I mean, we prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And then when we found out who he was, see, it was like this, hey, we've been praying for you for years. And when, it, when, when, when my daughter comes to me and says, you know, it starts looking like they're going to get married. Then Dalton comes to me to talk to me about that. You know, one of the things I'm so overjoyed about, yes, I'm overjoyed because they love each other. Yes, I'm overjoyed because they love Jesus. Yes, I'm overjoyed about But you know what else I'm, I'm overjoyed about? Because you don't ever have to commit adultery. 
Never. That's amazing. What a gift that is. You can live your whole entire life. Man, what an amazing gift. And we got people in the church like, oh, no, you should wait. Oh, no, you're too young. <laughs> now, how do, you, how do you walk through this door of hope? How, how, do you, how do we convey this to the people around us? Well, the first thing you got to do is this. It's very simple, two simple things. The first thing is you need to cultivate your love for Christ. See, adultery is a promise-keeping problem. Sexual sin is a promise-keeping problem. For the believer, that's what it is. And so if we have to address it for what it is. Now, I mean, I can make you feel guilty, and I can fill you full of shame and condemnation, but that's not going to help you get out of the ditch. If you want to get out of the ditch, here's how you get out of the ditch right here. Step one, cultivate your love for Christ. Remember, you know, this just happens to be that, you know, most of the D groups have just gone through this. So, I mean, I just went through this a couple weeks ago. In Genesis 39, when Joseph has to deal with Potiphar's wife, and it is so remarkable what Joseph says to Potiphar's wife when she tries to seduce him. And this is what he says. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, talking about Potiphar, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That is a, just such an extraordinary statement. Now I want you to think about what, what he's saying here. He's acknowledging his position. He's acknowledging the relationship between her and her husband. And he said, and, and he hasn't held back anything from me but you because you are his wife. He's acknowledging his understanding of all of that. And then he's acknowledging that this is an issue between him and God. Now, now, now let, let me just say something. To, there's some of you in this room that have young children, so I want you to listen to what I'm about to say. Here's what, here's what you do. You, you have this idea in your head about your young children. You want to raise your young children in such a way that they're never exposed to a pornographic or inappropriate image. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Dumb. You know why it's dumb? Because it's impossible. Impossible. You're gonna where where are you planning on raising your kid? Mars? You're, you're, is your child ever gonna leave a home? Is your child ever gonna discover that there's such a thing as an internet? Is your child ever gonna have a cell phone? Is your child ever gonna go to school with other children? Do you do I need to stop at any point? If you think for one second that you're going to raise your child in such a way that they don't encounter an inappropriate or pornographic image, you are insane. That is the dumbest thing I ever heard of. Now, I don't, of course you don't want that to happen, but what do you need to do? You need to raise children so that when that happens, they know how to respond. Because it's going to happen. Period. It is going to happen. Now, look, look back at Genesis 39, and I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you about Joseph. Was Joseph unfaithful? 
Did Joseph do anything wrong? Was Joseph in the wrong place at the wrong time? Was Joseph in any way, shape, or form to blame for what happened to him? He did everything right, and yet this skank shows up out of nowhere and tries to take advantage of him. That's, if that's true then, what do you think's true now? Come on. Be, let's get with the program here. You don't, you're not going to raise your child so that they, you know, I'm going to raise my child so they never tell a lie. That, no, no one says that. I'm going to raise my child so that they never sin. I'm going to ra- Well, come on. Of course not. Well, then let's be realistic about this. When you try to raise your children in a bubble so that what happens is when it happens, they don't handle it correctly. They hide it from you. They don't know what to do with it, and it becomes a problem. You are helping the problem. What you need to do with your children and grandchildren is raise them in such a way so they're prepared to face the things in life. Look at Joseph as an example. I rest my case. Joseph did not see his temptation as a private issue between himself and Potiphar's wife. But he knew that it was a spiritual issue between him and the Lord. Look. I'm telling you, see that right there? If you got young kids, you just put a big circle. If you got grandkids, you just put a big circle around that statement right there. That's what you want to raise your kids to do, right there. You want your kids to understand that truth right there. So that when Potiphar's wife shows up, because she's coming, that's what you want him to understand. That's what you want her to understand. And then... They'll handle it like Joseph did. Now, why am I so certain that cultivating love for Christ is because, number one, it worked for Joseph. Number two, it worked for everyone through the Scripture. That's what the Bible teaches. And when you're in this ditch, here's what you need to know. Here's the principle. A new love can be so much stronger than an old habit. You know what? You know what? Some, you know, somebody says, oh, Pastor Tony, oh, you know, I've got this problem, and oh, this, and this has been going on for so long, and I've, I've tried everything under the sun, and nothing ever, nah, 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 nah. yeah, but you, you hadn't tried my solution. I never met a habit new love couldn't crush couldn't crush it. Crush it. When I met my wife, all my habits changed. You know what they changed to? Whatever's going to help me get her to marry me. That's what they changed to. Everything else, I'd light that sucker on fire in five seconds. It don't matter what it is. I was captivated New love, whatever's in the way of that, got to go. And what happens to us is when we rekindle, it's like, it's like the Bible talks about we're being, we're being filled afresh and anew. You know those moments when, when you're going along in your Christian life and all of a sudden you know God's speaking to you and you suddenly sense his presence is very real in your life and he's doing something in your life and it's just like, it's like you got saved all over again. 
Do you know the difference between, you know, just going through the motions and being reminded? You see, the truth of the matter is, is that when you've been married for a long time, it's not always great. But you know what happens? Is it's not so great for a little while, and then something happens, and you're reminded, and then it's great, isn't it? That's what happens. It's the same thing with Jesus. When you're, having a, when, you're, when you're not keeping your promises, you know what you need to do is cultivate your love for Jesus. You need your cup filled to overflow, and that's what you need. That's the most powerful thing in the world. See, when, you're, when your love for Christ, when it begins to flourish, you're going to see your temptation in a whole new light. A whole new light, and victory is going to be right there. Because love empowers. It empowers. Man, it nothing fuels us like love does. Nothing energizes us and motivates us and gives us purpose like love does. Nothing. And, and love comes in, in a multitude of ways. The way that we show love for different people is different. But when you love something, let something come against that and see what happens. Try to hurt something I love and see how that works out for you. Right? You know why? Because I, I, if I love it, then, then I'm, I'm energized. I'm motivated by it. I will, I will do things for someone I love that I won't do for anybody else. I'll do things that don't even make any sense. I'll put myself in harm's way. I'll do the craziest, most insane thing in the world to protect somebody I love. Because love, that's the power of love. So what happens when you cultivate that love for Jesus afresh and anew? Number two. Act in the power of the Holy Spirit. I want you to focus on the word act. Because before you in your mind dismiss that and think, well, that's obvious, makes sense. Well, it it's, doesn't and it's, it should, but it doesn't. Whatever the temptation is, when it comes to the battle with temptation, God does not tell us to pray about it but to take action. So let's go on record. You can write it down. Pastor Tony says, don't pray about my temptation. You got that? Do not pray against your, about your temptation. The dumbest thing you can do is pray about your temptation. That is the dumbest thing. That is the biggest mistake. you could, Well, no, that's the second biggest mistake. The first biggest mistake is you could give in to the temptation. The second biggest mistake is you can pray about it because the Bible teaches the very opposite. You know what the problem with praying about temptation is? What are you thinking about when you're praying about your temptation? What are you focused on? What is your mind consumed with? And so I've said it a thousand times, and this will be a thousand and one times. It didn't make it into Scripture, but it only missed by this much. The principle of the Oreo. If there's Oreos in the kitchen, and I know they're in there, and I want to go in there and eat them, 
but I know I shouldn't eat them. Do you know what the worst possible thing in the history of the world? Take it from somebody who has done this the wrong way many, many times. If I sit in my living room and I go, don't eat the Oreos, don't eat the Oreos, don't think about the Oreos, don't eat them. Whatever you do, don't eat them. Them suckers are good as gone. I mean, I'm going to slay a whole sleeve of them in five seconds. You don't pray about it. You know what you do? Get up and leave the house. Go for a bike ride. Go for a walk. Get away from them suckers. Because if you sit by them and think about them, you're going to eat them. Or, just going to give you some advice. I go, honey, I'm wanting to eat those Oreos, so you better chop me up some celery or something quick and get something moving. And then she'll, you know, and I'll be sitting there chewing on. But I'm, I'm not thinking about Oreos. I'm, I'm distracting myself with something else. People, man, and, and they're struggling with sexual sin, and they're like, well, I've been praying about it. Well, there's the problem right there. The language of Scripture, and I mean the whole Bible, is always active when it comes to our struggle with temptation. God calls us to put up a fight. So I said, act in the power of the Holy Spirit. Act. A-C-T. Romans chapter 8, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, the, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. Does that sound passive to you? Does that sound? What about Titus chapter 2? Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. All action, everything, outward, literal, active behavior. So what we need to do is understand what God intended, the full scope of why he would say that we shall not commit adultery. We need to understand that when we're dealing with this ourselves or with other people, that we need to, it's two simple things. We need to cultivate our love for Christ because new love will slay any old habit. And then we need to act in the power of the Holy Spirit. Act. Now, one last thing because we can't have this conversation without talking about this. The struggle to forgive. Because any conversation about adultery is totally incomplete without a conversation about forgiveness. So let's have the conversation. You see, hidden secrets and open betrayals bring deep, deep wounds. And they're not easily healed. And if there's any of you in the room that have been through this, then you know how deep those wounds are. And you know, you see, the thing that makes adultery and sexual misconduct in a relationship so devastating is that the act is in secret, but the betrayal becomes public. So it's doubly devastating. 
You see? Because it blindsides you. Because it comes out of nowhere. Because it... There's no opportunity to prepare for it. So when sexual sin has been uncovered in a marriage, there are always two mountains that must be climbed. And again, this sexual sin is unique in this way in what I'm about to say. Two mountains that have to be climbed. One person faces the challenge of repenting. The other faces the challenge of forgiving. Neither one of those are easy. They're both a challenge, but they're both necessary. And you see the difference in the context of a marriage relationship is that if if I sin against you, if I offend you, maybe I, I mean maybe I hurt your feelings. Maybe I maybe you just think I did. I don't know. But you're offended. You're hurt. Whatever. I go to you, and I say to you, I'm sorry for whatever it is that happened between us, and I'm asking you to forgive me. Then I've done what's right in God's eyes, and whether you forgive me or not has nothing to do with me. You understand that? That's on you. My hands are clean. I did what I was commanded to do. It's not like that in a marriage. It doesn't work that way. Marriage is different. This is different. You got to have two people that do what they're supposed to do. Otherwise, the relationship is going to be destroyed. Both people have to do what they're supposed to do. If both mountains aren't climbed, it's not going to work. See, both are necessary for healing. Because there's healing that has to take place in both. See, we oftentimes think that there's only one person that requires healing, but that's not true. Everybody in that relationship, in order for it to move forward in a healthy way, requires healing. So do you know in the, in the New Testament where the Bible gives provision, special provision, separates adultery with regards to marriage different from any other sin in marriage, Right? You know that? You read your Bible? Yeah? It's different. It's the only place where the Bible's like, it can't always be fixed. And why is that? Is it because God's unable to fix it? No. It's because it takes two people, both people have to climb the mountain. And if one climbs a mountain and the other won't climb the mountain, it cannot be healed. You understand? That's why God's saying that. That's not some open uh, provision that means, well, if somebody commits adultery in a marriage, you could just divorce them and walk away from it. That's not what that means. That's not what that means. I'm about to show you why. Here's the principle, and then I'm going to show you how that works. If your spouse can repent, you can forgive. It's that simple. 
I mean, this is true in every area of life, but, but this will be the most difficult area. So why is the Bible telling us in the New Testament that this is such a critical, devastating problem in the marriage relationship? And this issue of forgiveness is a devastating problem among Christians. Now, I'm going to teach you a principle. The parable of the prodigal son. So the son comes to the father, and he sins against the father, and he asks for all of his inheritance. And he takes all the inheritance, and he shames the father, shames the family, takes all the inheritance, blows it on wicked living. You know the story. Commits atrocious actions against the father. The father handles everything with dignity and with kindness and with care, and the, the prodigal son handles everything with selfishness and wickedness and sinfulness. And then he finds himself in a pig trough, and he comes to himself, the Bible says. And he has a conversation with himself. And in the conversation, he confesses to the fact that he sinned against God. Isn't that how that goes? And then he, he recites what he's going to say to the Father. Isn't that what happens? And then he gets up and he starts going home to the Father. Right? Now he's going home to the Father. Meanwhile, the Father sees the Son coming home to him. And the Father takes off running to the Son. He runs to the son. Now, wait a minute. Has that son said anything to the father? Has the son repented? This is the conversation I have all the time. People are saying, well, I don't think he's repented. I don't think she's repented. I don't think. Hold on a minute, Charlie. Did the son repent to the father? That's my question. Have they had a conversation? No. They haven't talked. The father's running to him because he's moving to repentance. He's coming as he's repenting. He's running to him. You understand that? He's believing in the fact that he's repented. God ran to you and grabbed you and hugged your neck and kissed you. Before you repented. That's how that went down. So you need to think long and hard before you start discounting somebody else's repentance. Now, I'm not saying that everything's biblical repentance because it's not. But here's what I'm saying. If somebody is walking towards you in what appears to be repentance then you better be running towards them. You better be running towards them. Because do you know what Jesus said about the servant who received forgiveness but refused 
to give forgiveness to one who wronged him. He said, bind him up and throwing, throw him where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. If your spouse can repent, you can forgive. If you're forgiven, you're obligated to forgive. And listen, you better forgive. Do you know what's not in heaven? There's not a single person in heaven with unforgiveness in their heart. That's not biblical. It's not biblical. Yes. Marriage is honorable among all. Not because the two people in it are honorable, but because God makes it honorable. The church ought to be a place where marriage is mended. And made to be what it's supposed to be. And the power of God is not just so that it can keep us from ever falling in a ditch. But the power of God is such that when we fall in a ditch, it can pick us up and it can elevate it and it can put it on display as the one and only good and gracious God who can take that which is broken into a million pieces and put it back whole again. But that's never going to happen as long as this is a weird and awkward conversation. It's not weird to God. It shouldn't be weird to us. There's nothing more beautiful than to see repentance and forgiveness come together. See, that's what came together this morning in that young lady's life right there. That's the most beautiful thing you'll ever see. But when you see that in our relationships, when repentance and forgiveness come together, it is magnificent. There you go. When repentance and forgiveness meet, healing begins. Healing. All that from thou shalt not commit adultery.